Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. And on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you'll come back for new episodes after you love this one. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of this podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we get into the main event and introduce our newest guest, just a reminder for those who are on YouTube, make sure you hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications on new episodes. Also, if you're listening from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another streaming platform that's audio, make sure you subscribe there as well. And then of course, for those who want to help us continue to build this awesome platform of identity talk. We do accept monetary donations through cash app and Venmo. So if you're on cash app, our handle is money sign ID talk for ed. And if you are on Venmo, our handle is at Kwame SM. That is at symbol K W A M E S M. And of course, to catch past episodes of the podcast, you can go to our YouTube channel, which is under my name, Kwame Salfamensa. And you could also go to our official website at identitytalk4educators.com. Thank you kindly. All right, y'all. So we have another guest today, and she is somebody who is literally a baller. So she has, she got some skills on the court, but more importantly, she is all about the DEI work. She is all about equity. She's all about creating equitable spaces for our students um, in our schools. And she's had a an amazing journey just from the research I was doing in preparation for this episode. There's just so much to talk about. But I don't want to spill the beans too early because I want to make sure I give our guests an opportunity to to share uh, her story and and how she got to where she is today. So without further ado, I want to bring on this proud native of Warren, Ohio. Let's give it up for Dr. Erica Glover. Boom. How we doing? Uh, that was an awesome interest. Thank you. Awesome introduction. How you doing? I'm good. How you feeling? Man, I'm feeling blessed. I'm feeling blessed. I'm feeling great. Um, 
today <clears throat> is actually, uh, you know, I know we're recording now and the episode drops later, but today's a day where the Cleveland Browns play the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so um, I'm super geeked about today outside of just being blessed in the space I'm in. All right, cool. So you all about that dog pound, huh? Oh, yeah, we about that dog pound. I see you know oh, a little man. bit about it, too. So I'm getting my yeah, Arsenio yeah. on right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> nah, I actually haven't watched a football game since 2015. So ever since the whole Kaepernick situation, it oh, just kind of changed my perspective on, on just that industry and everything. So... And I grew up loving the NFL, watching every Sunday and being on my couch for eight, nine hours, watching straight football, not doing mm. my chores. That's respect. You know. I appreciate that perspective. Absolutely. I understand. Yeah. But I do know that uh, Cleveland, you know, hopefully they, they turn things around. I know, uh, <laughs> I know Baker Mayfield ain't there no more. You know, y'all got a new quarterback and a few new people on the squad, so hopefully they're able to make a run for the playoffs and maybe go further. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for the blessings, brother. Yes, of course. All right, so let's start from the beginnings. Coming from Warren, Ohio, humble beginnings. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you ultimately get into the education field? So I think uh, I truly believe in purpose, right? And I feel like getting into the field of education was like this great intersection of purpose, passion, and roles meeting. And oh, by the way, you get to make a profit out of it, kind of like feeling. Um, my parents, I was raised in a church. So <clears throat> my parents, I went to church seven days a week, eight days a week, <laughs> 378 days a year. And when I was 12 years old, um, I don't want to say I was forced to, but uh, I definitely was signed up for um, to be the Sunday school teacher for like uh, eight year olds. And so I had to come up with lesson. Now, I didn't ask, but I did it. I came up, I had to come up with lesson plans and I had to teach uh, the lesson. So my early beginnings of actually teaching, I was teaching Sunday school at 12 years old. Um, prior to that, uh, I wasn't the type that was playing church or school with the stuffed animals and things of that nature, but I was always the person that ended up babysitting younger cousins. I ended up always, you know, participating in different summer camps, sport camps, and I wasn't even, you know, being paid to go. I just enjoyed it. So um, a lot of my background, you know, working with family and friends and the community really comes from this dynamic of being able to not just teach, but coach. And so um, when I transitioned to college and uh, playing basketball, we would oftentimes do small camps. And I didn't feel like it was work. It was just a place to be when I was working with young people. Um, it was the, my space, my place to be. And so it naturally felt very um, organic to allow um, that passion and that purpose to come together. And that's when I decided, I think it was probably about maybe my sophomore year in college. Initially, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. I mean, I think everybody probably goes through some of this phase, these phases. Pediatrician at one point in time, an attorney, another point in time, a journalist. I don't know, maybe my sophomore year. Um, 
I walked into a conversation with a former teammate who was talking about um, be, becoming an intervention specialist. She talked to me about it, and I remember tutoring a cousin who was uh, diagnosed as having um, a disability. And so that's when I kind of realized that uh, this, this is actually something I could do and I love to do and now by the way I get paid for it. And so that's actually how I ended up in the field of education. Um, and so I ended up, you know, finishing my degree, um, became an intervention specialist. And what's interesting is the same building that I was hired in full time became the building I became an administrator um, and became a uh, a coach as well. So I had a lot of different roles. And so when I say when pur purpose and passion and roles kind of meet, um, I really truly believe I, I was entering the space that I was supposed to be in. Wow. So you mentioned uh, basketball. So before I ask this question, I want to ask a precursor question. What position you play? You, you sound like you was the point guard. You played a one, didn't you? Yeah, see, I, I see if you ask me, right? Sure. <laughs> I, I feel like I was... Um, and this was like, uh, who was this person? Um, Alan Iverson, right? I feel like I was, hey, uh, I was a two guard stuck in a point guard's body. So yes, I did play point guard, but I was coming up around a time when you had Jason Kidd, where you had, uh, Gary Payton, you had Penny Hardaway and those guys were stacking every element of stats, right? So I was trying to be like them, but at the same time, you know, the two guard wanted to ball me too. You know, it was one of those things. So, but yeah, in college, I played the point guard. And when they allowed me to, I was trying to play everything else. All right. Well, listen, outside of Jay Kidd, all of them was getting buckets. They, oh, they definitely was trying to get like buckets. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I figured you had to play the one because usually the great leaders run the point. Mm. They directing everybody, mm -hmm. make yeah, sure they're in the right positions, making sure that they're calling the right plays on each possession. And that's pretty analogous to what you have to do, not just as a teacher, but even as an administrator. Yeah. Every single day, you're making a whole lot of decisions on behalf of thousands of students, on behalf of faculty members, other support staff members, mm -hmm. and you know, this is all happening in real time. And sometimes some of these are split second decisions. So Absolutely. that's where it could be a bit more pressurized. So I would love for you to just share what lessons did you gain from the basketball court that you've been able to translate into your career as an educator? That is probably, um, so the response to this question is really at the essence of who I've become. Um, I was, um, growing up, I was the only, for a long time, uh, a female cousin, uh, younger sister. And so I was out, always playing with uh, my guy cousins and my brother. And with that being said, I didn't have the strength, right? I was almost, almost like the underdog, if you will. And there were a lot of things that I learned how to do because I was doing it the wrong way. And, um, as I was coming up as an underdog, still trying to figure out who I was as an athlete um, and trying to teach myself, I've, I've realized as I reflect back that I became the coach that wanted to help young people highlight what they brought to the table instead of just pointing to the things that they need to just work on. 
And I say that because there was a lot of confidence that I had to figure out how to learn and earn. And there were a lot of things I had to figure out in terms of roles, responsibilities, and lanes on the court and even in the space of education. So as a, um, as a point guard, I had everybody else on the court wanted the ball, right? They wanted the ball. They wanted to score. They wanted to do their thing. Um, and it was, you know, pretty much my job to make sure that we had the balance that we need and that everyone felt comfortable in their lane. Transferring those same skills to, and I'll go with educators or as my position in, the minute, in, in terms of being an administrator, it was the same thing, right? Um, you have different teachers that have, you know, that specialize in different content areas, that specialize in specific or really good in specific strategies. And the goal is to try to figure out, okay, how do we learn and work together to appreciate what everyone brings to the table, but at the same time, honoring the gifts that they have, because it is a game of being able, and I don't say game in, in terms of making it sound or making it look very light, right? But in terms of the balance that is needed to work, it became one of those things that you wanted to make sure that everyone had the confidence that they needed to do their work and their, to bring out their genius and their talents and their abilities. And then even as a coach, I worked with the, and I was an AAU coach. Um, I did coach girls for a minute, but as an AAU coach, I would have groups of, of young people, young men, actually, that would come to the team, talk like her, because they didn't have the confidence on their high school teams because their coach was only giving them limited things that they wanted them to do. And so one of the things that I really, and it was really as a result of the experience I had, I wanted to really push for my young men that I worked with was, no, we're going to highlight what you do well. But we're also going to, this that asset-based thinking, right? But we're also yeah. going to work on those things that you can get better at so that we can continue to contribute not just to the team, but to who you are as a basketball player, who you are as a person. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the essence of coaching. Mm -hmm. You get your personnel, you see what they're able to do, and you adjust your play calling, your schemes Absolutely. and everything to what your players are able to do. You're you're pretty much tapping into their strengths and playing to those strengths. That's that's what all the great championship teams do. And it's the same thing, you know, when we're teaching, right? We got to do all the scaffolding, the differentiation for a reason. Absolutely. In Absolutely. Order for, in order for us to do that, we have to know our personnel. We have to know our students, what they can do, what they cannot do. Um, but we're going to get into that a little bit okay. more, but I do want to, I do want to backtrack a little bit because before you were Dr. Erica Glover, you was just Erica growing up in Warren, Ohio. Right. And I want to know just in your K-12 schooling, were there any struggles, whether they be internal or external, that you had to go through while you're trying to embrace identity and be your full authentic self? So that's interesting. That's a really interesting question. Um, more recently, I've really been reflecting on several things. And so what I'll, what I'll talk about most is the thing that I've been kind of wrestling with more recently is seeing myself and the identity that I was in as an athlete, right? And so um, as an athlete growing up through high school, going up through elementary school, middle school, high school, there were things that came, that were, that came to me as privilege. Right. Um, there were times I didn't get in trouble. I should have gotten in trouble, quite honestly. Right. Um, and so that identity preceded everything else, quite honestly. Mm. And I began to explore that more and more as an older adult 
thinking about thinking about kind of like where I've come to, where I've come from and as a result of right. So I say that that's one thing that I think is important to table for me and my experiences. With that being said, when I came into the classroom, when I became an administrator, there were things that I didn't realize initially in terms of the privilege that I brought to that space, and and I began to see black students as monolithic people because of the privilege I experienced. And so it took some time for me to really understand the privilege that I brought to the table and to look at the different experiences that my scholars were bringing. Now, I'll table that and say that uh, school closure was something that I experienced. And um, I remember reflecting back on uh, and how it hurt me. I didn't spend a lot of time dwelling on it, but the fact that I still remember it today um, is something that I think, um, and I highlight that with educators that I talk to all the time, you know, school closure, sure. there's a loss of identity. Um, if your parents went to that school and graduated from that school, that tradition is now gone, right? There's this, there's this piece of now trying to go to a different school across town, fitting in, proving yourself, getting this respect, right? And I think, I don't think that people understand what that does to a young person's social identity. Um, right. And so, and I go back to that privilege as an athlete. Um, one of the things I'm thankful for is that I at least had that. But there were some people who were still trying to find themselves differently. And so they didn't know and trying to figure out, well, who is this authentic self that I can bring to the table? Um, I also experienced open enrollment. And so open enrollment, and it closed on the side of town and warm at the end of my fifth grade year. And so from second through fifth, I'm going to one elementary school. Sixth grade, on the other side of town where I live, sixth grade, I go to elementary school on the same side of town that I live. So that in itself is very interesting. So my classroom demographics look different. And so going back to proving yourself, um, finding a niche, developing a different group of friends, um, that was something that was not just an internal, but an external struggle for me. My uh, best friend and I at the time, Feel like, you know, we had to be ready to to protect ourselves when we needed to um, going into a different uh, neighborhood. Navigating was different in, in terms of those cultures. And so um, those are some of the things that I kind of dealt with. And then there was also um, and, and I talk about this often, especially with the educators that I've worked with in the past. I was the one of the only one of the very few black girls in advanced classes. And so mm. I would go to school and my classroom looked very different than the community I went home to. And I used to wonder like, why is not so-and-so in class with me? Why come I don't ever get these classes with, you know, with so-and-so? Um, and, and so I started to become friends with folks in my classes, obviously, right? And I remember having a conversation with a couple of, of, of my white friends and them telling me, hey, be careful because uh, so-and-so's parent are, they're worried that you might they that if they hang around you, they're going to date black boys. And so there was this like, um, there was very, very, there was a lot of different kind of layers and dynamics that were happening at the same time that I was trying to navigate and balance, but quite honestly, not, not disrupt too much. Cause I wasn't, I didn't really even know what it was myself. Right. And when you look back at your experience, um, given the work that you do now through Disruptive University, do you think back to times where you were like, 
wow, this classmate did some real messed up stuff to me right here. I can't believe I let that slide. I can't believe I let this comment slide. That's wild what this teacher did. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there is something to be said about, um, like, even just how you were raised and how you grew up, right? And so sure. I remember I told you my I grew up in church, right? And so it was always, quite honestly, you know, making sure that you're humble, um, listening, not, 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 not disrupting things too much. So it was ironic that here I am disrupting university. Um, but there are also some things that, you know, and I talked to my parents about this a lot that not just that they didn't know, but as a result of them not knowing and the result of what I didn't learn in school, I didn't know. Right. And so, um, just, just a history around, um, uh, racism and white supremacy and, you know, even within the curriculum, there's a lot of things that happened in my early years that I wish that I would, I would have been able to know what I know now to sure. be able to advocate for myself differently. Right. And so that, that's something that um, I take with me daily. I mean, every single day. And it's really the essence around empowering young people to be advocates for themselves. Mm. And speaking of your early years, because before you became an administrator, like you mentioned earlier, you were an intervention specialist. So you work with a lot of students who were, who had maybe different disabilities, students who prior on IEP plans, maybe had 504s. So, and I'm thinking about my own experience having an IEP when I was a kid mm. and how that made me feel and just the, the stigma that's associated with that, you know, being a black boy, right? Mm-hmm, yep. In your in your time as an intervention specialist, like how often did you see a lot of these problematic behaviors from either teachers, maybe even some of your administrators that ultimately interfered with your ability to intervene and provide the supports you needed to provide for uh, students who are under your load? So this is probably, uh, that question hits probably to like the, to the deepest part of my equity journey. It was probably the beginning of my equity journey. And the reason being is because, so when I went into the classroom as a full-time teacher, I went as a self-contained educator, a self-contained intervention specialist. And so what that meant was all of the students who were my class were categorized as having, and I say categorized because mm -hmm. after I learned more, it was more or less in my opinion, lack of relationships that were established. So my young people were categorized as having an emotional disturbance. And so um, I'll never forget, I'm going in the teacher that was in the classroom that I took over left the, left the classroom before the end. There were like two or three other teachers that had come before me. And so the uh, coordinator introduced me to the class the, my first day. And as she was walking out, the, the last thing she said to me was, Erica, it's important that you just make relationships first, right? And so I really didn't understand that at the time um, because I felt like that naturally just happened for me. I'm teaching and I have kids or scholars in my classroom from grades nine through 12. And my job is to teach them their specific, specific content at their grade level, all in one class. Policy issue number one, right? Like if you think about a 12th grader who's reading at a fifth grade level, 
he doesn't want his peers to under, to know what's going on with him. And so now I'm having to teach this, this scholar at his level in front of peers. Not, and, and outside of that, which is, you know, not a problem at all, but I'm thinking about how all of these dynamics are coming together. Outside of that, I was reflecting on the, the, the situation. And so um, at the time, we were waiting on our new building and the building that I was in, the classroom, they called it a dungeon. The heat didn't work in the winter and the air didn't work in the summer. And so um, there are often times where, you know, uh, my students will have to wear coats in the classroom. And I'll never forget the time we were having a conversation. Um, our first thing that we used to do in the morning was just check in with each other. And so before SEL and checking in became, um, unfortunately, something that people just do, this is kind of like what we did to take care of each other as a community in the classroom. And I had um, an epiphany, epiphany at that moment. And I'm like, hey, where's the only other place that you are in one classroom the entire day and they tell you when you can use a restroom, they tell you when you can go to recess and they tell you when you can eat lunch. And one of my students, I never forget, like screamed out jail. And it was like, at that moment, I was like, I'm, I cannot practice or prepare you for a school to prison pipeline. Like it's not okay for you to be in one classroom all day. And for a while, my students were institutionalized, right? They, they believed that they belonged in that classroom. They didn't even want to go out into the general classroom. It was that moment in that conversation that they began to feel like, you know what? We have to prove to everyone else outside of this classroom that not only do we belong in these spaces, but we are just as intelligent as they are. And so it really changed the approach that, um, that I had working with scholars from that point on. That's when I really realized not just, you know, understanding inequities, but how to help scholars uh, advocate for themselves and empower them to be able to not just speak their voice, but uplift their voice in ways that are most supportive of, of them. And so that equity journey is probably one of the most I talk about it all the time. It was the most uh, impactful thing I've learned about. And I didn't even go look at my scholars records. I purposely didn't look at, you know, didn't do that. But when I did, I would go back and be like, wow, you were in, they put you in a self-contained unit for that. And so the policy even around referrals to an emotional disturbed classroom or having an IEP that reads emotional disturbed, like, or the, the testing that is required that says you are gifted or, or not, right? Like, or, or who even defines gifted? Um, all really speaks to, um, in my opinion, there's still like a perspective that we have around those spaces. Yeah. And even with the labels, that's what leads to right. just tracking. Exactly. And exactly. usually the tracking is very much racialized, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And right. And we, and we talk about that. Right. The over and the underrepresented, like and, and not underrepresentation, but the overpopulation of a certain group or demographics of. Um, individuals in special ed in certain categories or labels, and then the lack of opportunities for advanced classes for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gifted, if you will, where we should have gifted opportunities embedded in the curriculum and in the classroom, generally speaking, across the spectrum of learners. Absolutely. And then when you're mentioning about your self-contained class, I'm thinking to myself, hold up. They're not even following the whole least restrictive environment policy right there because 
how much time are they spending in the mainstream classes with their other peers in the same grades? I'm wondering that, given right. what you've described to me. Right, right. And so, and, and that's a, it's a great point. And um, one of the things that I realized was how, um, for lack of better words, shifty uh, things would be with men. Uh, least restrictive or not, right? Like, all right, we're going into the cafeteria. Those are minutes that counts. And so when you ask the question about, right, right, right? When you ask the question about administration, I was blessed enough to have an administrator who was like, hey, Erica, do whatever you want. You know, you um, I, I came to her and I was like, hey, you know, my kid, my scholars want to go out on a, you know, general ed population. That's what we. That's what we're going to do. I'll go with them, but we're going to do that. And um, she was very empowering, and she let us kind of do what we wanted. Um, and so our goal. It was interesting because we would have middle school come, middle school uh, scholars come in from you know eighth grade, thinking that they were going to finish and graduate their um, lifetime as scholars in the self-contained unit, and they come in freshman year. We like, yeah, nah. No, that's not about to happen here. You about to go out in the class. And it was, it took some, it took some, some time because they were so institutionalized. They thought that they only deserve to be in one space. And there, there should be a whole episode on just the way special education operates because yeah. there's so many shady things that happen, yes. even with the diagnosis piece. Yes. Yes. I've and been on in top on yeah. top of that, Kwame, it's even, yes, we give parents their rights and, you know what I'm saying, but who's unpacking that for them, right? They don't know and so, them. And, that, and so, and, and, and that is, and that really does speak to a lot of, that's a whole nother episode. Like, um, I, I, I advocated for my parents, you know, whereas there were times where maybe uh, a district wanted me to say this, I'm like, no. I'm not doing that, you know? And so you, you get to a point where you look at yourself in the mirror and it's what you are not going to do as a result of who you are. Yeah, for sure. And I know uh, before we started recording, you know, off air, uh, we were talking about, you were talking about your experience um, in your doctoral program, you mm -hmm. know, about writing your dissertation and how you, were, you had all this fancy sophisticated academic language to explain simple points yeah. and I'm thinking about you know the IEPs mm. that we present to parents during those meetings and we're talking about minutes you know he's going to get this intervention for 40 minutes times 3 periods like they're supposed to know listen I don't even know half the stuff and I've been teaching for over 10 years. So how do we expect parents to understand what you're talking about? We don't even take the time to break it down. At least the people that I've come across, they don't really do that. Right. Nor do we give parents the, the grace and the space to just, you know, process what's going on. And I don't even know how many parents came to those meetings with advocates who can translate this very dense, ambiguously written language for them, right? So there, there's a lot there, you know, between that and then also how we diagnose students. The fact that yeah. 
you don't know what diagnosis there is, so you just say, okay, they have a specific learning disability, an, an SLD. That's like a catch-all, basically. Like, uh, I can't think of what that is. We're just going to put an SLD there so we can get them through the testing uh, protocol and then place them in a different class. Like, it's really lazy. Is Oh, and, and I mean, and there's a whole lot to be said about, you know, how individualized are IEPs, right? Sure. Um, especially if you're thinking about that catch-all <laughs> category, that catch-all label. Um, and with, on the other, on the flip end, we talk often, well, more, I guess, more recently, personalized learning. Well, mm -hmm. IEPs, <laughs> intention, we're, we're that, that the notion of what they are, that it should be in, in the personalized support, personalized interventions, right? Sure. And, and quite honestly, the resources in urban settings aren't there for that, Um and, and the supports that are needed aren't there for that. Um, and, and the background around that space is, I don't think people really understand that there are limited um, experiences across different districts with that background and that space as well. Yeah, for sure. So we're talking about a lot of different issues with special education, a lot of which you experience in your own journey um, being an intervention specialist. So like how much of a factor did all those experiences play into you making a transition into principalship and other leadership opportunities? So uh, my colleague and I, we used to be uh, co-teachers in the same classroom. And um, it wasn't expected, quite honestly, for, for us to have such an impact on our uh, on, on particular cohorts of students in the self-contained unit. And we knew we were doing something right when we would have students from general ed classrooms walking by like, hey, we we keep hearing about your class. We wanna, how are we getting your class? And it was like tough for us to respond to that uh, because, you know, we didn't wanna, you know, uh, put our, our scholars out there. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to acknowledge, you know, what they were really communicating to us. And so, um, I did. A, I do a lot in the community. Um, my, my colleague and I, we do a lot of uh, PBL type of uh, experiences working with local um, universities um, and uh, pre-service teachers. And one of the things that um, we do is that we want to make sure that we are reaching as many students outside of our spaces that we can. And so when I decided to go into education, I mean, to leadership, that's really what it was. It was me being able to take the opportunities that I had to be able to get to know students differently. Um, and so I went from having a small classroom size and a self-contained unit um, to being able to develop different relationships as a result of transitioning into leadership. And, and that was just, um, that was probably like, uh, how do I describe it? That was like icing on a cake. I really began to understand as a result of our discipline data, as a result of um, attendance, as a result of all of this data that was presented out to us during our, our team meetings um, and the strategies that I used that I had the, I was in a position to impact that data differently. And so when I was asked to consider, you know, going into a role of administrator, I began to realize that as a leader in the building that I could impact that data differently. 
Um, and so that was another reason why I decided to go into educational leadership um, to reduce or to eliminate the disparities, the racial disparities and the inequities that our young people are facing. And then um, being able to work with my colleagues that way, I felt as if that there were strategies in terms of building relationships. And, and we talk about this all the time. There's a difference between difference between default relationship, a relationship that I earn as a result of you coming into my classroom versus authentic relationships. And um, as a self-contained teacher who's, who, who, um, who has students with emotional disturbances or categorized that way, you know, there was the, you know, we had the 10 day OSS with the manifestation determination, right? We, we looked at that differently. We looked at it in terms of, okay, what relationships do we need to not even get to that point? And so those are strategies that I realized that I had that a lot of my colleagues, in my opinion, um, would, would benefit from. And so that step into educational leadership was really easy for me um, because I, be, I, was able, I was looking at the gaps and I was trying to find my space in that role. It's like being a point guard, right? It's like, all right, <laughs> we're struggling here. So I'm going to pick up this and I'm going to do this here so that our right. team can you know, do what we need to do. I hear that. I hear that. And then on top of transitioning to education leadership, eventually you had the idea to start Disrupt the University. Yeah. Yeah. And really get deeper into this equity work. So talk to me about how you got the inspiration to start Disrupt the University and what's the ultimate mission of the work you do through that company? So my uh, research is, is uh, centered around Black teacher identity. And so um, um, I was really looking to understand the experiences, both uh, as you know, Black teachers went, while they were adolescents, their schooling experiences, and then their personal and professional experiences that speaks to the strategies that they use to support students in urban settings. And so from that research, um, there, were, there were different things, right? Um, different strategies that, that came to light. Um, and one of those, one of the uh, free, most frequently used words um, throughout that research was disruptor. And so whether it be through curriculum, right? Whether it be non-academic um, strategies that some of those uh, educators labeled as life skills or um, uh, um, navigating global experiences and awareness, whether it's critical thinking, critical consciousness. Um, a lot of those uh, Black educators really were able to speak to things that they were doing that they, they didn't necessarily learn in teacher prep courses um, that happened as a result of the experiences they had as young people and working through um, oppressive institutional uh, structures. And so Disrupt University really comes from the experiences that I heard about throughout the research that I've been doing. And, um, and, and, they, and I kind of speak, speak to that in terms of what I experienced, right? School closure, open enrollment, that ends up being closed enrollment for lack of better words. Um, moving from one side of the city to another, and you think about the policies, you know, desegregation, how those things impact um, even, you know, how Black educators are situated in a specific space of education. And so in um, an area or a field where 
the uh, perspectives that come out of the research is predominantly white. My goal was to really kind of focus in on the experiences of black educators. And so Disruptor University comes from that. And so at the end of the day, Disruptor University um, is an organization that really works to disrupt the socialization pattern of teachers that limits, limits us in terms of understanding um, the importance of cultural awareness um, and the importance of critical consciousness. And so when we think about who our future, whatever is going to be, our future educators, our future lawyers, uh, police officers, uh, nurses, doctors, whoever, um, in order for us to, uh, to develop and support young people who are thinking about global awareness and cultural awareness, we have to disrupt the patterns um, that have already the status quo, the traditions that are in place that doesn't allow us to see people in ways that um, allows them to embrace their authentic self in those spaces. And so we are looking at how do we work with scholars that way? How do we work with teacher, pre-service teachers that way? And then how do we work with school districts that way? So that cycle is interrupted. And no, that's real powerful because I know for a lot of pre-service teachers, particularly those that got their training in the early 2000s, even mm -hmm. late 2000s, early 2010s, which is when I was doing my training for my master's program, we weren't getting this information. Right. We're just going through the motions and just trying to get our degree and our license just to get in the classroom. But I know when you dive into this equity work, it always starts internally. You, you do the readings, you do the research, you start to look at the errors of your ways. Yep. And then once you come to that awakening, you start to then see things a lot differently, especially when you walk into different uh, school districts, different classrooms. So in the work that you do through Disruptor University, I know y'all have an acronym called DIVE, which I love, which I would love for you to talk a little bit more about because I feel like it's something that we all must adopt as far as a mindset goes when doing this work. So tell us off what does the acronym DIVE stand for? for our listeners and viewers. Yeah, yeah. So DIE stands for Disrupting Inequities Within Varying, varying Experiences. And so when I worked for this particular school district where I was a, a DEI learning specialist, one of the things that we really focused in on was we've all experienced both uh, advantage, advantages and disadvantages. We've all experienced needing support, wanting support. We've all experienced having barriers um, either removed or not, right? We've all experienced um, disappointment, frustration at different levels and not necessarily had the language to attach to it. And so um, when we talk about die, we're talking about how do we embrace folks so in the way that they want to be their authentic self? How do we create not just safe spaces, but brave spaces so mm. that people can question the status quo in a way that is the betterment for not just everyone in the space, but for the organization, generally speaking. And so we oftentimes talked about being seen, valued, and heard, and it's not just something you say. In order to really, truly understand at the individual level, being seen, valued, and heard, you have personalized experiences. And you have to first be able to reflect on self to understand 
or what are my experiences that I've had where I felt those emotions that I'm very much connected to? And at the same time, what experiences don't I understand because I've never had them? And I think we oftentimes dismiss that latter um, just because it's, it's easier to not think about what you've not experienced. And so um, we really emphasize students as scholars as their own, experts of their experience, and how do I learn from the expert of their experience? How do I dive into understanding the social political context that they're coming from? How do I enhance my own critical consciousness so that I'm not just uh, reflecting on my experience, experiences and then pushing my experiences on others, but I'm also now thinking about how different people come to this space differently as a result of who they are. Mm. And speaking on people being in different places of, on this journey of equity. You've been in a lot of schools. You've come across a lot of different faculty and, and staff members in those schools. Not everybody's on that same plane when it comes to equity and their, and their capacity around that. So I'm wondering how are you able to push teachers to dive, pun intended, into this work and engage in this reflection that you're speaking of? So I think uh, one of the things that we emphasize uh, or we used to emphasize, and I say that because uh, I, I currently just, I, as a consultant, I just do the work myself, right? But in mm -hmm. the districts that I've supported is, first of all, what is our common language around equity? Um, we, we, you, you, when you're talking about diving, you folks need to know what they're diving into, right? What sure. is equity? How do I understand it? How have I experienced inequity? Um, or how do I, how do I know about the experiences of others as a result of inequities that they may have experienced? So, first, we really spend time, and I kind of mentioned this before, understanding who you are, right? And, and in terms of people coming in at different spaces, is what are the experiences that you had in your experiences as a former scholar? What were those great experiences? What are those experiences that, you know, you wish would have gone differently? What was that? What did that teacher do? Um, that educator do that do that brought you to education? And what was the one that kind of pushed you away? Right. And so once you begin to think about the experiences you've had and you make connections to the emotions that you felt. Now you're in a position to understand how things could be different for other people. Um, and we start at a very, I think it's important to start at a very foundational level. Um, I also think it's important to show the data around equities. Uh, I think uh, there, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. There's one thing to talk about facts. There's another thing to speak to data. And so we also point to the racial disparities. And it's like, okay, if we know this isn't working for this particular group of young people, and as educators, our job is to reflect and adjust, what are we going to do differently, right? And so we, then we begin to unpack even those strategies, the deficit mindset that comes with that, right? Um, being or and pivoting towards more of an asset-based mindset in terms of how we're working our, with our young people. And another thing that we work through is, um, we think it's important, is the history behind uh, systemic racism. There are so many times where I'm presenting and I'm consulting with folks and and we're talking about um, the timeline of different policies that have led up to where we are in this space of not just education, but our world today. And there's so many times I hear people say, see people, excuse me, hear people say, you know, oh my God, I didn't know. 
And so, you know, part of the work of diving, part of working with people that's coming in from different perspectives is finding different, just like in the classroom. I have different students that come in and different from different uh, angles of learning experiences. My job is to be able to make sure that I'm understanding where they're at and I'm giving that content so that they're making connections to not just first their experiences and then how it relates to others. And so that's why the book that I was talking to you about, Kwame, is so important. It's like in order to be more culturally aware, you have to first be emotionally. You have to think about who you are emotionally. That emotional intelligence is very important, right? And and oftentimes you hear educators talk about SEL, transformative SEL is where I pivot to. How do you model SEL if you are still working through your own emotional intelligence? And so we start at that foundational level of who are you? Why are you here as an educator? What form your beliefs? Um, what speaks to the pedagogy and the approaches that you're choosing? And, and then how do we pivot so that it is aligned to the differences, the genius, the uniqueness that your scholars bring? All right. And I know that uh, Dr. Dina Simmons talks a lot about social emotional learning. Um, Absolutely. You know, and shout out to Dr. Dina Simmons. If you're hearing this, I'd love for you to come on this podcast. Quick plug Absolutely. there. Transformative um, SEL. Yeah, because she talks a lot about how schools present SEL as white supremacy with a hug. Yep. Where, okay, we're going to keep it cute. We're going to talk about feelings and emotions, but we're not going to intersect it with the racialized experiences of historically marginalized folks. We're not going to intersect how different students feel with what's happening in their neighborhoods, what's happening in their homes. And, and you know, we, and that's why one of the things that I think is most important is helping under, folks understand first, what, what are the differences that speaks to the worldview views and the perspective that's, you know, people bring to the table, right? And then outside of these differences in the context in which they're coming from, what are, what are those social political uh, influences that impact their lives that will now impact how they show up in your classroom? Um, and, and critical consciousness sometimes is a struggle for people at the early point of this journey, right? And so it's really bringing to light the, those experiences that our scholars um, are navigating through. Um, and not just, I mean, and, and not just highlighting resilience, but the inequities that comes with having to be <laughs> resilient, you know? Ah, for sure. And then I have one last question before our lightning round. And this is going back to just the self-work. So even though you talk a lot about equity and you are in different schools and different communities preaching and just sharing the importance of this work, you yourself aren't an expert in what you're sharing. You're still learning as this is going on. I think there's a there's a humility that comes with it's a critical humility that comes with the work that we do in equity. So I would love for you to just share how you're continuing to grow in your own practice and what are some blind spots that you're still growing in in your understanding of, of diversity and, and equity and inclusion? I think that, I think it's always, uh, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm gonna begin with that yes. first of all. And if I'm in a space of education, there, there, there's no way that I can say I'm an educator and not be a life, lifelong learner at the same time. 
with that being said, I believe that there are people that um, have different levels of understanding in this work, but there is no way that anyone is going to get to a point of perfection in this work because society changes so fast. Culture changes so fast. And so um, part of my way, uh, of my uh, goal in, in terms of ensuring that I am practicing this lifelong learning uh, journey is research, is to be in those spaces that are different and understanding the, the, the discomfort that might come with existing in spaces that are different, that I've never been in, that I don't understand, and questioning and interrogating the thoughts that come to mind as a result of being in an uncomfortable space. Um, I think that is uh, probably one of the most uh, humbling experiences that, I, that, I, that I've had, um, and it gives me an understanding of what else I need to learn. Um, there are different dimensions of diversity that are coming to this space with, you know, that are being named that I think that, if, especially if you haven't had those experiences, right, um, then you you just wouldn't know. Um, and like more recently, we were having conversations around neurodiversity. Uh, and, and I have scholars who wants to have those conversations and, and talk about, you know, um, that even that dimension of diversity. And so being able to have conversations like, you know what, I don't know every aspect of this, right? But I'm going to find out as much as I can. I think there's, you know, there's time to have conversations and ask questions in this area, but there is something that I believe is important, regardless of where you're at in your level in this work, is you still need to put in that time to research and learn and understand for yourself. Yeah, um, neurodiversity is an area that I am still growing in a lot mm -hmm. more. And I'm even thinking mm -hmm. back to my own experience as a student with an IEP. Mm -hmm. The fact that even to this day, as I approach my 40s, I'm still a slow processor. That's me too. But I, me but too. I got two college degrees though. I got two right. college degrees. Right. So, you know, I tell like uh, my friends know when they ask me a question to give me a second. Because I've learned over time that's what I need. Whereas if you're in a classroom, you ask a question, will we put your hand up? Well, what if I haven't gotten here, but I, but I know the answer to that question, right? And so like just even understanding that becoming better at understanding the ways that our brains operate, I think is important. Right. And even when we think about neurodiversity, it's not even just about how we differentiate content and even the pedagogical approaches that we take. It's also about the pacing. Yeah. Like, because a lot of the pacing is accelerated because we're spending so much time trying to get to the assessments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to taking our time and seeing where people are because we can't just take, we can't do a, a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to this because we're all coming at different rates in terms of how we process information. It just doesn't work that way, but that's how our schools and even our curriculum is structured and even packaged we look at scope and sequence plans they say all right you should be done with this in two days three days but guess what i have a class that has ieps has students with ieps i have students who are emerging bilinguals they need time to process right. this language as they learn english i have students who don't have an iep but probably should have an iep and i still mm -hmm. got to break down this work for them mm -hmm. 
I have students just, that that need yeah. to have hands-on experiences versus paper and pencil, right? And not even giving that experience to them that, that that way as well. And I think this education, we really do a good job of saying what we should be doing. Like we will espouse, like we'll say, oh, we're lifelong learners. Oh, we're preparing global learnings or, oh, um, you know, we personalize learning. We do a really good job of saying it. Um, but what that looks like in practice, I feel like that's where a, a large part of that disconnect is. Oh, big facts right there. But listen, Dr. Erica Glover, this has been an awesome conversation. Yes. And yes. we we going to wrap this up with this lightning round. So I have a few fun <laughs> questions to ask you. Um, first off, how are you taking care of yourself? What's your self-care routine these days? I'm on the beach. I'm trying to figure out how to get on the beach at all times. That's my self-care. Um, I am in a different space mentally on the beach, eyes closed, listening to a podcast, listening to an audible. Um, or if I can't get to a beach as quickly as I can, I'm reading a book. Um, those are definitely, and it's been different over time, but that's definitely where I am with my self-care. All right, cool. Uh, what current book are you reading? Your Purpose is Calling is just dropped September 20th by Dr. Darius Daniels. Um, he really explores identity from a, a biblical perspective. Um, and so it's, it's, it's super dope. Like it's one of the, I read Purpose Driven Life years and years ago. This book right here tops that hands down for me. So I, I, I definitely encourage anyone that's listening to grab that book. Nice. Give me your top five favorite basketball players. Oh, that's easy. I'm going with Brian, MJ, Kobe, Tamika Catchings. And uh, man, I played against her. And I'm like, oh yeah, she <laughs> Oh, when she, she was in uh Tennessee? Yeah, I played against her when she's in Tennessee, and then I played in the NWBL. She played for a team that I played against in the NWBL. So yeah. And then Gary Payton, the glove. The glove. The yeah. glove. So I'm I'm Erica Glover, so it was like only, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> ah, cool, cool, cool. And then um, my last question is, who would you like to see on this podcast? Oh, I got a friend named Kenny Jojo Smith. Uh, he uh, actually is a children's book author. He actually works with me at Disrupt University. He's really been focusing on a black male perspective um, in education. I really think that you guys would connect. And I got one more I'm throwing out there. Uh, Chris uh, Edmine. I'm sorry, I got to throw him out there. Ratchet Demings. Oh, Dr. Uh, Emden? Oh, yeah. Man, you got Emden. Yes, you got to get him on here talking about Ratchet Demings. That book. Yeah, listen. Um, shout out to Dr. Emden. Shout out to Hip Hop Ed. I've actually have reached out to him, you know, a couple occasions, but, you know, the man's busy. Yeah, but, you know, I'm going yeah, to continue to reach out to him. Um, his books have really I, changed my perspective, and I still refer to him to this day. He's just a North Star for me. Yeah, he is, his, everything he writes is fire. And, yeah. and it embodies all of kind of, you know, quite honestly, who, who I come to the table with as an educator. Yeah, for sure. All right. And then, of course, we can't let you go without 
sharing with the good listeners and viewers how they can connect with you on social media and also drop the Disrupt the University website for folks to visit. Yes, absolutely. So you can catch me on Instagram, Twitter at Dr. Erica Glover. Um, that's D-R-E-R-I-C-A-G-L-O-V-E-R. It is exactly how it sounds. Um, you can also uh, connect with us, reach out in terms of what we do with Disrupt University at www.disruptoruniversity. And then make sure you have the E for disruptor, uh, disruptoruniversity.com. All right, y'all heard it. Make sure y'all check out Disrupt the University. Learn about their services. They're doing some dope work. All right, Dr. Glover, it's been real. Appreciate you for giving us this hour. Yes, same here. Likewise, thank you so much, and I wish you a good rest of the day. Likewise, brother. Thank you. Peace. All right, thank you. Peace. All right, y'all. Well, we had a great time with Dr. Erica Glover. Hopefully, y'all continue to follow her and, and the work of Disrupt University on social media and beyond. But as for us, we're about to end our time together. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.